Good morning. It's a joy to be here with you all to open the Word with you. As you know, many times in many ways over the past 40 plus years, uh, Trinity Bible Church has supplied the needs of Hillcrest. So to be invited by Pastor Will to come and have some small chance to begin to pretend to repay all that mutual ministry, um, it's a real joy uh, to be able to be part of that this morning. I think the relationship that our churches share, along with Grace Bible Chapel in Japan, I think it really fits the description that Paul gave to the Thessalonians when he said, we have a fond affection for you and are delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own very lives because you have become very dear to us. So I'm grateful for the relationship that we share in the mutual ministry and thank you for having me this morning. I can only pray and you can pray for me that I do no disservice, no disgrace to the word and to this pulpit, which has over the years been filled by men much better trained for ministry and more skilled in the exposition of the word than I am. So you can pray for me as I speak and I'll pray for you as you listen. Um, I really just had one question to begin with, and that is, who gave Dylan my notes? <laughs> the reading of the ironic blessing this morning was right on target, not, not to mention the comments that you had during Sunday school, which for those of you who were here, you'll see how some of this ties in. And we really didn't coordinate except he saw my title and text, unless one of you sent him my notes. <laughs> but the topic this morning is taking hold of the promises of God, taking hold of the promises making the promises of Scripture our own, ministering the promises of Scripture to our own hearts. How do we do that? And the promises of God in Scripture are a really big deal, in part because there are so many of them. Some estimates, depending on how you define a promise, are as many as 7,000 or more. And also, I think, because they're so critical to our salvation, to our sanctification, and some days it feels like to our very survival, in this Christian life. So there's a lot of material out there to go along with all those promises. And if you were to Google something like claiming the promises of God or appropriating biblical promises, you'll find some <clears throat> interesting things. There are some blog posts and articles and sermons on the topic. One that came up in my search results was claiming the promises of God in 10 easy steps. My thought, of course, being the contrarian that I am, was why can't it be two or three? Does it have to be ten? But the very next search result was comforting because it said the problem with claiming God's promises, which I didn't click into and read, but hopefully that was it shouldn't take ten steps. Maybe correcting the previous article. But there's a lot of material out there and a lot of extremes. And I want to kind of set up a couple of extremes for you this morning with a couple of little made-up stories that might help us begin to get a a grasp on some error, perhaps, on either side of how we might approach the biblical promises. Let's say you're having coffee with a friend one morning. We'll, we'll give him the name Billy. Billy loves the Lord. He loves the Word. He does have a very personal, maybe almost mystical approach to his interaction with Scripture. We might say he's low on exegesis and high on eisegesis. We might say he's thin on theology and thick on application. But you love Billy, and you love the way, in some ways, he tends to look at Scripture and say, how is this text ministering to me today? He knows the Word of God is living. 
So you say, Billy, what's what's new in your Christian walk? And he says, boy, am I glad you asked. I was hoping I'd get a chance to tell you about my devotions this morning. I was reading in Genesis 18 where God told Sarah that she was going to have a son within a year. And I don't know if I've ever explained this to you, but my wife and I have been, been wanting to have a child. And when I read that verse, I got the warm tinglys and it just seemed like God was saying, this is for you. And, and I don't want to leave that on the table. I'm going to take that for, for the way it hit me. And uh, so this afternoon, we're going to hop onto Amazon Prime and start our nursery wish list. You, you are excited for us, aren't you? Because you're sort of sitting there going, hmm. And we might snicker at that scenario a little bit, but we've probably all heard something like that or maybe even been at places like that at some time in our own Christian walk. And it can be concerning, right? Because if we as Christians appropriate the promises of Scripture incorrectly, it's perhaps not that different than any other misinterpretation and misapplication and failure to rightly divide and apply the word of God. It's important. We need to study to show ourselves approved. Our friend Billy here failed to pause and ask some really important questions like, who was this promise made to? And why did God make this promise? And why does God want me to know about this promise? of a seed through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. And what are the real implications of that seed for me? Pretty serious theological questions. Went right past Billy, right? So that's not particularly going to feed his spiritual growth. Another really significant concern would be reaching out 12 months. Where's Billy going to be spiritually if indeed he and his wife do not have a child? Will it rattle his faith? Will he feel that God has betrayed him? I think sometimes a sloppy approach to the promises of Scripture can unsettle our lives when the promises of God are intended to do exactly the opposite. They should settle our spiritual walk. So that's Billy. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum. It's another Saturday. It's another coffee shop. You're sitting down with another friend. We'll give her the name Sharon. You're having some great fellowship and the conversation kind of moves into the topic of evangelism. And you say with some enthusiasm, you know, I get so much encouragement from knowing that whenever I share the gospel, the power of God and the presence of God are right there with me. The presence of Christ. I don't know if I could bring myself to evangelize if I didn't know what Christ had said there as he was about to depart the earth when he said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That, that stimulates and strengthens my evangelism. And then you look across the table and Sharon's doing the same thing to you that you were doing to Billy the week before. And Sharon says, well, hold on just a minute. Jesus did say those words in Matthew 28 and verse 20. He did say, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. But remember, Jesus made that promise to the 11 remaining apostles. And at that moment, he's giving them the great commission. And they're stepping into an entirely new era of founding the New Testament church. And the apostolic age is commencing from then through A.D. 70-ish, right, till the apostle John passes so maybe that's the age it's referring to. Well, let's not jump to conclusions about what the age is. Let's take a look at that. And, and if that's true, it's referring to the early church foundational period. 
that's not my time, and I'm not an apostle for sure. And so strictly speaking, maybe that's not even my great commission. In which case I have to ask, is that my promise? And so by very narrowly defining the promise and looking carefully at its original context as given to its original recipients, Sharon has, it seems, boxed herself out of the promise. She says, I can't lay hold of that promise for sure. I'm not entirely sure it applies to me, and I don't want to make the mistake of taking it out of context. So with these two friends, and maybe even within ourselves, as you've listened to that, maybe you've picked up on threads of what some of these extremes can be in how we interact with the promises of Scripture. And if those are faulty extremes, then you ask the question, well, what is a biblical approach? What is a biblical approach? So one says... If you like a biblical promise, you have a special feeling about it, it's for you. You better claim it. The other says, if the promise doesn't fit your exact circumstances, and especially if it seems to have somebody else's name attached to it originally, tread lightly. Be care- Better safe than sorry. Hold it loosely, if at all. So I hope this morning to encourage you with a biblical methodology for looking at the promises of Scripture and taking hold of them for our own walk, our own lives. And the path we're going to take here, Lord willing, uh, we'll start with a look at Psalm 119 and verse 132 and establish a foundation from there. And then I want to walk with you through three biblical examples of how the saints laid hold of the promises of God. All of them are in the book of Hebrews. They'll kind of be small case studies or application studies in this foundation that we look at from Psalm 119, 132. And then I hope at the end to kind of distill that into a principle that we can use in our lives to lay hold of the promises of God. So that's the plan. The foundation from Psalm 119, 132, then three examples in Scripture, and lastly, this principle for laying hold of the promises. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 119, if you're not already there, I'm going to go ahead and read all of this acrostic section, starting at verse 129. Psalm 119, 129 through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is toward those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word. And let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down from my eyes, because men do not keep your law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have provided this for our learning this morning, for our edification, for our strengthening. Thank you that your spirit is here with us to cause us to understand. We pray that you might teach us, Lord, how to grasp your promises and how to walk in the confidence that you would have us to have as we look at who you are and how you work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're not going to take a lot of time with verses 129 through 131 this morning, but I do want to touch on them briefly because here I think we have a snapshot into the psalmist's life 
and some challenges that he's facing to sort of set up verse 132. In 129, he says, your testimonies are wonderful. We could say your witness, God, about yourself, your self-witness. It is a binding witness. It is a truthful witness. It is an honest statement that you make about yourself, these statements in your word. And he says, those statements are extraordinary. They are surpassing. They are miraculous, is a word you could use there for wonderful. And note the word, therefore. He says, therefore, my soul keeps them. And we might be tempted to say, my soul is looking at the word, sees how marvelous it is, sees how miraculous it is, and chooses to keep it. But that's not what the verse is saying. The word is miraculous and marvelous in its effect upon the soul, causing the soul to keep it, causing the soul to obey it. The word acts marvelously upon my soul effecting a change in me. Then verse 130 gives us the mechanism. It sort of lays out how the process works. We see that the active ingredient is light, the light given by the word. So the word enters and gives light and understanding. It works through revelation. It works through chasing away that which is dark in the mind and making the simple wise. So it works miraculously first upon the mind, And then through the mind touches the will and emotions, causing me to obey, causing me to keep it. So that's that's the process or the mechanism. And as the psalmist considers this marvelous transforming work of the word, his response in the very next verse, 131, is a response of great desire. He wants this desperately. He pants after. He feels parched until he receives the work of the word. He yearns to have the light of the word bringing revelation and clarity and understanding to his own mind. He's thirsty for this marvelous work of the word in his own soul, desperate for it to change him from the inside out, to transform him. So he's made these statements. This is true of your word and this is true of how it works. And then he says, what about me? Right? Is it working that way for me? And I think initially his statement there would be no. It, I, he feels the parch. He feels the, the need. He is panting, desiring this working of the word in his own life. And we could ask the same for us. Can we look at statements like verses 129 and 130 and say, yes, that's how the word is working in my life. That's how the word will work in my life, though I may feel the parch this morning. I'm confident God is going to use his word in my life in this way. Can we lay hold, if you will, of this promise that God's word will make its entrance and shine its light upon our understanding through the understanding, impacting the will and the emotions and causing us to obey? Well, the text answers that question, and that's the verse we're going to primarily camp out on here, which is verse 132. This is how David dealt with his own panting his own need and desire to see these statements come to fruition in his own life. This verse, I believe, 132, is birthed out of that need and longing that you see in the preceding verse. We could even call it a desperation he has for God to work in his heart through the word. So he cries out, look upon me, look upon me. Now this word look 
includes the concept of turning. It's not just an action of the eyes. It's not just looking for the purpose of observing. There's a lot more going on in this word. By way of example, Amy and I were on a hike last weekend, uh, Saturday a week ago, and when we got to the high point, um, we paused and we soaked it in. We looked around and kind of that beautiful view from St. Helens around Rainier, Adams, Hood, to the south, Jefferson. It's beautiful. So we were just making note of this or that and kind of soaking in the view. That's not what this word means, this Hebrew word panah. This look means to turn towards someone or something for the purpose of action. Not just moving the eyes, but the head and the whole body facing toward a person or a situation with which you intend to engage and generally to engage for the aid of the subject. So that would be more like if Amy and I had been hiking along, thank the Lord this didn't happen, and I'm enjoying the view and I hear a whoop behind me and a little shriek of pain, then I'm going to panaw, right? That, that's what this word means. I'm going to turn toward her, my whole body, with the expectation that there is a need and that I'm going to engage for her aid. So that, that fundamentally is what lies beneath the use of this word here in this verse. So that's what the psalmist wants from the Lord. He's asking the Lord to turn about until his face is turned toward him, his whole presence is turned toward him, and then to take an action, an action of showing grace. Now, if you step back with me from Psalm 119 for just a moment, I, I want you to see what David is doing here. And the more I look at this, the more I believe this is what he is doing here in this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe David is, in fact, reaching all the way back into the book of Numbers and claiming something very special. I think he is reaching all the way back to Numbers chapter 6, verses 25 through 26, that ironic blessing that was read this morning, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, and it's fundamentally the same root, panah, May he he look upon you. May he make his face to shine upon you, turn to you, and be gracious to you. That's the same word also. And be gracious to me. Right? Kanan. So in Numbers 25, you have that the Lord, it's a little bit different rendering of the word, same root, and kanan. And then in Psalm 119, panah and kanan. And I don't think that's by chance. I think David is referring back to this ironic blessing and invoking that language as he pleads with the Lord for this countenance and favor of God. So he's lifted that out of numbers and he's applied it to his current spiritual situation of feeling parched and needy for the word of God to work in his life. So it's as if he says, I know that was given to the priests, to Aaron and his sons. I know that was to be spoken over the Israelites as they were in the wilderness, as the tabernacle was being constructed. But I'm in a wilderness right now. I could I could use some water from the rock. I need some daily manna. I need the presence of God tabernacling with me. Um, so I'm going to take that and I'm going to pray that back to God as if it were my own. And I expect that God will come through for me in response to this request. So, David here, I believe, has appropriated this Old Testament language, applied it to himself, and the question becomes, on what grounds 
would he dare to do so? Because I would posit that if those grounds are sufficient for David, they are sufficient for us. So what is the rule of biblical interpretation that David uses here to appropriate to himself the Aaronic blessing? Look back at 119.132 with me, the second half of this verse. Look upon me and be merciful to me as your custom is, or as is your practice, as is your usual manner toward those who love your name. Or if you have the old King James, as I did when I was preparing this, as thou usest to do. And here we make a really great discovery within this verse, because when you dig into this word, this word translated custom or manner or as you usually do, in the Hebrew, that word is judgments. It's the same word, mishpat, that's translated as judgments throughout Psalm 119. It's in verse 7, 13, 20, 30, about every five or ten verses, we see it there. So if you were just reading casually through Psalm 119 and you came to verse 132, you might say, oh, this is one of those rare verses in Psalm 119 that doesn't actually explicitly reference the word of God. Right? It doesn't use one of those testimonies or law or those, those sorts of words, but it, it does. It does. We would have missed it. It's right there. As your judgments are toward those who love your name. And I think I understand why the translators perhaps didn't present it that way. It's a little hard to process in English. And when we generally think of the word judgments, you know, look upon me and be merciful to me as is your judgment toward those who love your name. And we tend to think of judgment as, as punishment or at a minimum, it's, it's strictures, right? It's rules maybe against which will be measured or, or something like that. And this, this vision of, a judge, you know, that is conjured up doesn't really seem like grace and looking uh, with mercy and with intent to aid. But I really wish they just stuck with judgments because I think it's really important to see the where the rest of that word is within Psalm 119 and how it all ties together. And it is such an amazing word. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so you'll have to be patient with me here. But I'm going to try to walk you through what I believe are six nuances, six implications, six facets of this word mishpat or judgments. So if you take notes, this might be a good place to pull out your pen or your pencil. I'll walk through these six. Hopefully they'll give us, as we kind of walk around this word, look at it from these six angles, a clearer understanding of its meaning. Mishpat, first of all, is a word of legality. In the lexicons, you will see it associated with words such as case, Court, crime, justice, procedure, sentence, verdict, right? So clearly this is a, a word of, of a, of a legal scenario and of a legal type. Secondly, it is a word of authority. The picture that it conjures is of a judge who's properly vested in the power of his office and properly rendering a verdict. So this is not an imposition. This is not entertainment. This isn't judge duty or something like that, right? This is a properly vested judge to be properly respected, rendering the mishpat, the judgment, because he has the authority to do so. So it's a word of legality. 
It's also a word of authority. One without authority never renders a mishpat. It takes authority to do so. Thirdly, this is a word of predictability, or we could say precedent. And that, I believe, is why the translators, they wanted to draw that out and they leaned into that concept as they chose a word like custom or usual manner. I think a good example here would be if someone, hopefully none of us, were to get a DUI, but such were some of us, right? Scriptures say. And uh, you're sitting with your attorney. And your attorney says, look, here's the deal. Um, it's probably the sec- probably the hundredth case I've taken like yours in front of this judge. Um, he doesn't mess around. When we go in there to deal with these charges, here's how it's going to go down. If you plead guilty, he'll do one of these two things, generally the former. If you plead innocent and this thing goes to jury trial and they find you guilty, he's going to throw the book at you. I'm just telling you that that's how it goes with this judge. You can bank on it. So there's this concept of based on past precedent, past actual experience, there's confidence about future and future behaviors based off of this mishpat. There's this repetitive practice that leads to certainty about an outcome. It's predictable. Fourthly, this is a word of moral rectitude or a moral of a word of morality. It inherently involves this concept of what is right and what is proper in a particular situation or circumstance. And the judgment is right because no other judgment would be so right. This is the appropriate one. And the judgment is right because the one giving the judgment is moral, is just. So there's just, sorry, justice or morality, moral rectitude. Legality, authority, predictability, morality. Fifthly, and I love this one, this is a word of finality. Once the judgment is rendered, we're done here. The case is closed. The gavel comes down. The determination has been made. And this one may be the most beautiful, I believe, because you might not pick up on this from the previous five. This is a word of condescension. The authority here is pictured not as an equal, but as at least one or many maybe ranks above the situation at hand. And the authority, like the unjust judge, could decline to engage with the case, but does not do so. Therefore, the judge is stooping down to address or redress what matters to someone of a lower rank than him. To resolve a situation in favor of one whom he need not deign to bless, but chooses to do so. So those are some of the key aspects of this word mishpat. There's a lot in there. But as you look at it, legality, authority, morality, predictability, finality, and then condescension. Now, why does all this matter? Why emphasize these nuances, these aspects of this word mishpat? Ah, because remember, it was upon this that the psalmist staked his request. It was upon this grounds that he could be so audacious as to reach back into number six and grab the ironic blessing and make application of it to his current spiritual wilderness. He said, Lord, turn to me and be gracious to me. Why? Because this is your mishpat. This is what you always choose to do toward those who love your name. 
You do it because you are just. You do it because you're in a position of authority to do it. This is within your power. You hold the scepter. You are the judge, and you always predictably, based upon precedent, we know, like the sun rises and sets, this is how you condescend to meet the needs of those who love your name. That was the basis upon which he made his request. God, you are who you are. So you always do what you always do. So I can confidently lay hold of this numbers blessing and apply it to my own immediate case, to my desperate longing for your word to come alive and work in my heart and in my life to transform me in the miraculous way that it does, because this is your custom. This is who you are. And on that, I can build my hope. So this is the foundation that I wanted to lay from Psalm 119 and verse 132. This is a wonderful example of how to plead with God, of how to lay hold of a promise that you might find in a very different part of the word of God, made to a different person in a different era, and apply it to your own heart and life. He doesn't do this based on his merits. He doesn't do it based on his demerits. He doesn't do it based on his circumstances. He doesn't do it based on his accuracy, the accuracy of his exegesis and application of number six. He does it on the basis of the character of his God and the predictable actions of God that flow out of that character, the mishpat of God. Now, the scriptures are absolutely chock full of mishpats, the consistent ways in which God deals with his people. We can look at, you mentioned Elijah this morning, Dylan. You can look at Elijah. You can look at Noah. You can look at Hannah. You can look at Peter, Joshua, Esther. And we see in these accounts the very nature, character, attributes and consistent behavior flowing from those attributes of our God. Pastor C.J. Williams uh, from the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, he put it this way. He said, the Bible is a book of precedence. It tells us who God is by showing us what he does. And as the Bible recounts the whole true history of God's interaction with his people since the very beginning of the world, if it teaches us anything about his character, it surely teaches us that it is his custom to look upon and be merciful to those who love his name. That's great. And if that was his custom towards Sarah and Elijah and Jeremiah and Mary Magdalene and Stephen, he's not going to break custom with me. God does not operate by whim. He operates by mishpat by consistent condescension and grace based upon his very nature. So, with that foundation beneath us, I want to turn and look briefly at three examples in Scripture of how saints took hold of the promises of God in faith. These examples will hopefully help us make kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? Application of, of this concept that we've been handling here this morning. Uh, they're all in Hebrews, two in Hebrews 11, called the Hall of Faith. So if you want to turn there with me, uh, we'll start with Hebrews 11 and verse 11. And we'll take as our first example here that of Sarah. Hebrews 11, 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. 
Now here's Sarah, who was told directly by God in Genesis 18 that she herself would bear a son. When she was clearly no longer in her childbearing years, even when she was younger, she had been barren. So Sarah here is doubly barren, first by medical deficiency and secondly by geriatric progression. She is not going to bear a son, humanly speaking. And yet God has said, you will bear a son. Well, at first she laughs. Genesis 18 tells us that. She laughs in her heart. But then this verse in Hebrews 11 tells us that Sarah started thinking. Her thoughts were, again, not of her own merits, not of her own demerits, not of her particular circumstances. Instead, her eyes turned to Jehovah and just follow here how she thought, how she led her own thinking, how she reckoned, how she made estimation of this situation as she looked at it. She looked at Jehovah and she said, Jehovah, faithful. Jehovah, faithful. She reckoned it so. And therein she found her mishpat, right? Jehovah, faithful. She assessed the character of her God. And with that assessment, not only did she fully embrace the promise, but within a year she did, in fact, embrace a son. But you see here what her faith was built on. It was built upon the character of her God. She said, God is faithful. He is morally upright and consistent and reliable in his grace and in his promises. I judge him faithful. That's my God. And that's how she took hold of that promise. Now, the second example, if you look down in verses 17 through 19, this is her husband, Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, In Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now, here is Abraham, like Sarah. He was told directly by God back in Genesis 17 that the promised seed would come through Isaac. And now, bewilderingly, God is telling him to go sacrifice this one through whom the seed was to come. And like Sarah, Abraham got to thinking. What was his reasoning? Were his eyes on himself or his circumstances or his potential loss? No, he turned his eyes to Jehovah and he did the math. He computed, if you want to look at it that way. He reckoned with the truth. And this is what he concluded or charged to or imputed upon his circumstances at that moment, that bewildering moment. Jehovah, able. Able. There's a mishpat, the consistent character of God. And with that reckoning, he not only laid hold of the promise, but he also laid hold of the ram that God had provided in the bushes and received his son back to himself. But again, see what his faith was built upon. It was built upon the character, an assessment of the character of his God. He said, God is able. He has the power. He has the authority. He can deliver on his word. And because he's able, I know he'll keep his promise. I judge him able. Now, you might point out that in these two examples, Sarah and Abraham had what appears to be a distinct advantage over us today. They had a direct and very personal promise from God. I don't know about you, but it's been a while since I was sitting in my tent door at the heat of the day and had three men walk up and give me this sort of a promise. Um, 
that sort of thing, we don't seem to receive promises in that same way from our Lord today. So then how do we lay hold of the promises? How do we apply this principle? And I think this is where this third example will help us. So if you turn over just a couple of pages there in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. It's a section that I know our pastor Gary loves. It's a wonderful little section here. And we'll see the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lay hold of a promise that was not made to him, nor to his readers or listeners, whichever they were in this case, not his audience, right? And then appropriate it into the current moment. Look at verses five and six of Hebrews 13. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So catch that, that the writer quotes, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, is that spoken to him? Not that we know of. Was it even repeated by Christ to the apostles? Not explicitly that we know of. So he's lifting it, it appears, out of Deuteronomy 31.8, where Moses said to Joshua, the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So that promise was given to a different person in a different era under very different circumstances. They're about to cross the Jordan. They're about to enter into the promised land. There's a new leader in charge. Yet the writer to the Hebrews says, I don't need to fear. We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. But do you see what he's done? He's seen within the promise of God to Joshua an attribute of God, a character trait of God's. God, helper. God, present. And he says, ah, that is the usual manner. That is the custom. That is the judgment of my God toward those who love his name. He's present with them and he helps them. So I don't need to fear either. Because he understands that the unchanging ways of God are derived from the unwavering character of God. The unchanging ways of God are derived from the unwavering character of God, and that enables him to lay hold of this promise and to make application of it to these Hebrew Christians in their day. So those are our three examples. Uh, two are direct, uh, the very personal promise. The third one is an example of a very indirect, different era, different person. And yet the writer of Hebrews takes that promise and sees the application of it to him and to his readers. Because this is how God deals with his people. This is normative. This is precedent. And our God is a God who does not change. So Following those three examples, then, this brings us to the principle that I wanted to share with you when it comes to laying hold of the promises of God, which fundamentally is whether the promise of Scripture seems direct or indirect, either way, we must look at it through the character of our God. What does this promise tell us about our God? Is he faithful? Is he able? Is he present? Is he gracious? Is he merciful? Is he holy? Is he kind? Is he a helper? Is he a redeemer? 
What do I see here about the nature of my God? And then we overlay the character of God upon our case. And from that, we are able to rest in a confidence about what the work of God will be. Because our God's conduct is downstream from his attributes. Spurgeon put it this way um, in a sermon that he entitled Taking Hold Upon God. He preached it in 1877. He said, plead after this fashion. You have said it, O God, and I believe it. And I trustfully look to you to be as good as your word. On this, your promise, I depend. And I am persuaded you will keep your word. And then he says to his listeners, the character of our Lord Jesus Christ may furnish you with a hold fast. And I thought, indeed it will. The character of our Lord at the point where we, like David, may be pleading for spiritual revival and the work of the word in our own lives. Or maybe like Sarah, we're we're reckoning with this impossibility in our lives or we're computing like Abraham. Well, if God has said this, but then this is happening, what does the future look like? Or maybe we're struggling with fear. And like the writer to the Hebrews, we need a courageous assessment, a courageous conclusion to the situation where we can say, I don't need to fear whatever it is when we see how the promise of God evidences the character of God. We have there a mishpat and a mishpat, as Spurgeon said, is a hold fast for the Christian life. We say this God is your manner of conduct toward those who love you, those who are in a right relationship to you. It flows from your character. It carries the full authority of your throne and it's reliable like the sunrise and sunset more than the sunrise and sunset. Because our God does not change. And in that way, we're able to lay hold of the promises of God for us. I have a piece of calligraphy that Amy made for me years ago um, from Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 gets a bad rap sometimes in conservative Christian circles. Uh, because there, Jeremiah is writing to Judah. Judah is going into captivity in Babylon for 70 years because of their sin. But ultimately, God will cause them to return. He will restore them. Someday they will seek for him and search for him and he will be found of them. He will bring them back from their captivity and cause them to dwell in the land again. So the promise of a hope and a future. I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. We're all familiar with that passage. That's not made to me. Not directly. I'm not a Jew. As far as I know, I'm not going into captivity momentarily, at least not to Babylon. So is this promise for me? I say yes. You say how? I say, because this text reveals the character of my God. Jehovah is a God who knows the thoughts he thinks toward his people. That wasn't a one-off for Judah. Jehovah doesn't work by one-offs. He works by mishpat. He works by customary manner, not one-offs and whims. So Jehovah is a God who intends peace and not evil for his people. Jehovah is the kind of God who secures for his people a future and a hope. Now, I can bolster that by looking elsewhere in Scripture. God's thoughts toward me are described in Psalm 40 and verse 5. They're more than can be numbered. Yes, he intends peace for me now and in the future. John 14, 27, other passages. God has indeed reserved a hope for me. He has great plans for me. First Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. I can also see that it would be inconsistent with the character of my God for this not to apply to me. God would never say to me, Matthew, I'm actually not exactly sure what I'm thinking about you. Uh, I may have some thoughts of peace. I may have some thoughts of evil. 
I, I may intend to give you a future, but I'm still working on that part. And I'll let you know more when I know more. Of course not. That's not a judgment. That's not a gracious, consistent deigning of Jehovah toward his people. That's not who he is. That's not his custom as evidenced within the pages of scripture and the precedents that we have of how God ministers to those, turns toward with grace those who love his name. So I say the God who never changes has here in Jeremiah 29 given me a mishpat. I can lay hold of that promise by making assessment of the character of the God it reveals and saying that God is my God too. He's my God too. Now before I close, I want to condition, qualify everything I've said here this morning with two words. And those words are Jesus Christ. Because if you're not joined with Christ by faith this morning, then you cannot lay claim to the mishpats of God toward his children. In fact, God has an entirely different manner or custom toward those who do not know him and who do not love his name. And that manner, according to scripture, is wrath and eternal damnation. So in order to not receive that manner, that custom of judgment, but the custom of blessing, you need Christ this morning. It is in him and only in him that all the promises of God are yes and amen. But there are a couple of mishpats for you in scripture I want to share this morning. If you do not yet know Christ, the first one coming from his very own lips, John 6:37, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That's a promise. To which we can add the words of Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, that great invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So if you want to know the mishpat of God toward you this morning, if you're lost, it's this. Come to Christ and he will save you because he's given his word that he will do so. And that is his manner. That is his custom because he is full of mercy and pardon. So come to Christ and repent and believe the gospel. And for those of us who are in Christ today, if we're trusting in him, what a wealth of promise is ours. Amen. Remember what Peter calls it? Exceeding great and precious promises that have been given to us. The Apostle John tells us the best of them all. In 1 John 2.25, this is the promise that he has promised to us, even eternal life. There couldn't be a better promise. So, as we walk through this life, let us not look at ourselves, nor at our circumstances, but let us look to our God, at his unfailing customs, which are derived from his unwavering character. And therein let us see his mishpots, his judgments toward those who love his name, and by them lay firmly hold of the hope that is set before us. Because we too can say, Jehovah faithful, Jehovah able, able for me. Jehovah present, present with Joshua, present with me. Jehovah helper, my helper, my hope, my future. Mishpats. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you communicate to us your very nature, your attributes within your word. And as we look at how you have worked with your saints over the years, the promises you've made, the promises you've kept, 
we know that we are looking at a God who is faithful and a God who is able and a God who is present and a God who is a helper, a God who is merciful and gracious and loves to turn himself in favor toward those who love his name. So we pray that you would help us to move forward confidently in this Christian life, knowing that as we look at scriptures and we see you, this God also is our God and he will be our guide even unto death. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.